Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I have a special guest for you, Dr. Catherine Goh, and she's going to share with you a lot of great things about the lab, and you're going to learn a lot. But I also have a request. She's going to do a little show and tell. So if you're able, I highly recommend that you watch this on YouTube. You can listen on your favorite audio platform too, because she's really engaging and sensitive and wonderful to listen to. But she shows us a lot of things that you really need to look at. So if you have the opportunity to watch this on YouTube also, please do it. You will have that extra treat. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I've learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today we welcome Dr. Kathy Go. I'm very excited to have her on the show. We talk about all kinds of things related to donor conception, but we don't often talk about what happens behind the scenes. And today, our expert, Dr. Kathy Go, who you'll hear about in a second, is an amazing storyteller and will share with you everything that you really need to know about what happens in the lab. So Dr. Goh is director of the IVF laboratory at the Brigham Women's Hospital and teaching associate at Harvard University. She earned her doctoral degree in molecular biology from the University of Pennsylvania and has been a laboratory director and practicing embryologist since 1984. She has been on the faculties of medical schools of the University of Pennsylvania, Thomas Jefferson Medical University, and the University of Massachusetts, and has also taught at the Medical College of Pennsylvania, and the Experimental College of Tufts University. Catherine has served on the Executive Council of the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, has been a consultant to the FDA, chair of several postgraduate courses for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, and has also served as a chair of Reproductive Biology Professional Group at ASRM. She's also past president of the New England Fertility Society. Well, that's a lot, Kathy. You've done amazing things in your history. Um, And I'm so grateful to have you on this podcast because I think our audience will learn so much today in the short time that we have together. So thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Lisa. Can we start by talking a little bit about the lab? We were speaking earlier about how sometimes patients might say, well, what difference does it make where I go? Is a lab really important because I have young eggs from a donor or I have great sperm from a sperm donor? It's not like I'm going to use fragmented sperm or older sperm. I I don't really need to worry about it. And so does it really matter if I have a good lab and what happens there anyway? If you're talking to someone who doesn't really have the um, inside information on what happens in the lab, what, what would you tell them? I would tell them that fortunately, the overwhelming number of my colleagues in embryology care deeply about their patients 
and said they want to operate a laboratory that observes best practices. You mentioned that patients think they've, they've purchased the best sperm, the best eggs. You want a laboratory that will help those eggs and sperm fulfill their developmental destiny and provide the embryos and the opportunity for children that the patients are hoping for. So a laboratory is typically accredited by the College of American Pathology or the Joint Commission for Healthcare Organizations, the same organization that accredits hospitals. And that means that the laboratories have proven to the inspectors and to those accrediting agencies that they have things that patients would expect them to have. They have validated procedures, procedures that are proven to be effective. They have trained personnel with documents that attest to their the completion of training and the training has been completed to a acceptable and actually a, a transcendent level so that the, the operators are always consist consistent and always able to achieve best results. The laboratory uses validated instruments that are quality controlled every day and approved materials. So it's like any process, you want the people who are doing the process to be at their best and you want the things that they are using, both the consumables, the disposables and the instruments and equipment to be the best too. So an IVF laboratory has the role of taking sperm and eggs and allowing them to achieve fertilization and to conserve and to provide the optimal conditions for those resultant embryos to develop. And once you have the embryos, you can now choose to transfer the embryo to the patient in, in the effort to achieve conception and pregnancy. And if there are embryos remaining after the best embryo has been transferred, there may be a number of best embryos you would want the laboratory to freeze them. That would afford them the opportunity for more pregnancies to build their family from that single egg retrieval. Or if unfortunately the patient does not conceive, then rather than go through the whole process of acquiring the eggs and sperm again, going through the entire laboratory sequence, you can just thaw those remaining embryos and again, take another shot at becoming pregnant. Freezing has, always, has also become central to the process of doing genetic testing on embryos. In cases where donor eggs and donor sperm are used, it may not be a standard of care, but if you have one of the patient partners who's at risk for a genetic disease, the couple may elect to do genetic testing, in which case that would be relevant. So there you have it. A laboratory is a place associated with the doctor's clinic that is quality controlled, has a program of quality assurance, is populated by qualified individuals who care about their proficiency and their performance, and uses the whole array of things to achieve optimal res results from the IVF process. Well, that's great. I, I think that's really helpful. Could you share with us some of the things that go into making a great lab and what are the things that you need to put into the lab to perform all of the duties that you have in the day? It's not just kind of an, another office. Well, we can take it from the top, Lisa. So in an IVF laboratory that is has its personnel and has its equipment, you open the doors in the morning and you do a quality control check to make sure all your instruments are right where they should be for calibration. 
and you have, an, a whole, you have a whole security system so the laboratory is protected, preventing anyone who's not authorized to be in the laboratory from entering. It is a secure, protected space. For instance, our inventories, our, our tanks holding frozen eggs, sperm, and embryos are all on an alarm system so that we would know immediately if they're changing temperature so we could come in and intervene before anything catastrophic happens. But once the laboratory is open, everyone will look at the schedule and determine what's being done that day. So if we had a patient, for instance, who purchased donor eggs, we would prepare to thaw those eggs, take them out of the freezer, have two embryologists confirm their identity, and put them through the thaw procedure, and then put them into culture plates like this so that they're ready to undergo fertilization. Mm. And then if there is a male partner who is involved in the child or the family building process, he would produce a semen specimen for us to process. And by process, I mean we would isolate the best sperm from that semen sample to combine with the eggs in the culture plate. Typically with frozen eggs, we do a procedure called ICSI, I-C-S-I, which stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. So that's a process where we will have to do an operation on the eggs, essentially. We would put the eggs in a microscope in a dish under, so that we can examine it under the microscope. And using appropriately tiny instruments, we would load up a, a needle with a single sperm and inject each of the donor eggs with the male partner's sperm. And now we would put each of those injected eggs into culture. So back they go into a plate like this into the incubator overnight. The next morning, we would look at the eggs and determine which of those are fertilized. We would find that there would be two nuclei, as you remember from high school biology, that signals that the egg has been fertilized. And now we would move the, those fertilized eggs to new culture and put them in the incubator and grow them out for as many as five to seven days so that the embryos can reach their developmental optimal stages. And then we have the choice of doing a transfer, in which case we would load up an embryo into a, tr into a catheter like this, give this to the physician who would place that embryo in the recipient's uterus, and then we could cryopreserve or freeze the remaining embryos by a technique called vitrification. So a vitrification device is, is a little container like this onto which we would load the embryo, immerse it in liquid nitrogen so the embryo is immediately frozen, and we would cap it, and all of these things, very importantly for our patients to know, are all stringently labeled, meticulously labeled with two identifiers, top and bottom here, and all every container that is used in IVF is labeled for the respective patients, so there can be no confusion ever about their identity. And we can always faithfully match correct male and female and correct embryo to female recipient. But then if we are, as continuing, if we are freezing embryos, we would put these in storage. They would go into a labeled container like this. All of the cryopreserved embryos would be stored like this and go into our tank. And then the cycle is done. The patient has undergone her transfer. Any remaining embryos have been frozen. If the patient had elected to do genetic testing, we would not be doing the transfer. We would biopsy, take a few cells from the embryo, send them to a partner genetics laboratory and freeze the embryos in the meantime while they're generating the analytic results. And then we would get a genetic report that would tell us that which of the embryos was appropriate for transfer. And then that, after which 
we can thaw the embryos, take them out of storage, and transfer the desired embryo to the patient. So through all of this, there are procedures for each step. All of the embryologists are deeply experienced in each of the techniques so that you can expect the results to, to be optimized. That's fantastic, Kathy. That's so helpful. I hope everyone out there was listening. There's a lot of information to take in. And as you can see, it's really important. All of these things are very carefully watched in the lab. And I think it's really helpful for people to understand all of these pieces that go together. Um, you were talking a little bit about ICSI before. I think that sometimes people wonder, well, when do you do ICSI and when do you do not do ICSI? Could you share a little bit about that? ICSI is the most aggressive way of achieving fertilization. It is possible that there are mature eggs that do not become fertilized. Some clinics want to guard against that and will do ICSI on all patient couples, all patients, regardless of how good the husband's or male partner's sperm look. It's a philosophical thing in, in some cases. Other clinics do not want to use ICSI on all patients because they feel, why would you use an invasive technique when it's not indicated? In this case, when we're talking about donor eggs that have been frozen, ICSI is absolutely required. So I think that patients don't have to question whether or not that's an option. There is something about freezing the eggs that make sperm injection required. Uh, there's a philosophy that perhaps the protein coat that surrounds each egg has become harder from the freezing process. But in any case, I think that um, that remains as a standard of care to do ICSI. There are some clinics that believe if a patient couple or a patient has gone to the expense and trouble of acquiring donor sperm that is expected to have been optimized by the bank, Still, you want to maximize the chances of fertilization. So they may just have it as a paradigm that in all cases involved, involving either donor eggs or donor sperm, that the most aggressive, I, I hesitate to use that word aggressive, but that's what it is. It, it is, I guess, the most surefire way of pursuing fertilization, even with donor sperm. Yeah, it, it seems sometimes to me almost like, uh, you know, a, a blind date just meeting on your own or having a matchmaker. Yes. You have a, <laughs> you're either put together and that's it, or you have, you have to figure out how to meet each other on your own. That's exactly the analogy. Lisa, ICSI is the embryologist choosing the sperm, making a very considered examination and selection of the sperm available to him or her for the injection. And in some cases, when we're treating patients with male factor infertility, where there are very few sperm or very few sperm that are showing motility or the ability to, to swim, move forward, then that becomes an even more important process. Uh, sometimes the sperm number is so limited that there is no other choice but to use ICSI. In other cases where there, there appear to be ample sperm high percentages of motility, then one reasons that you just let the natural process unfold in culture. So interesting. And speaking of culture and things that happen in the lab, 
I know when we saw each other last, you were talking about some new technologies that will be changing what happens in the lab. Can you talk a little bit maybe to start about how AI is going to affect the lab? So AI is the hot topic now, right? You can't can't open a magazine, a newspaper, or a website without seeing some allusion to artificial intelligence. So the thought is that a computer can identify so many more things than the human eye and brain even working in concert and even after years of experience. The thought is that currently an embryologist will select the embryos using all of that experience all of that knowledge to choose an embryo based on how the embryos look. Sometimes it's challenging. When that happens, you usually ask a colleague to take a look to which of these three embryos would you choose? And, and thereby you, you come to an agreement. You want to do the best thing for the patient, knowing that appearances are limited. We, we know that. But AI gives us the theory that if you show a computer Sufficient images, thousands of images of embryos that did implant and lead to pregnancy and live birth, and thousands of images of ostensibly similar looking embryos that did not lead to pregnancy. Can the computer find those little nuances that elude us, human eyes, and begin and use all of that information integrated into algorithms using those platforms that are Beyond my range of knowledge, my, my um, experience, things like convoluted neural networks, computer learning, computer vision, those are engineering terms and engineering techniques. But if they can help us look at a cohort, a set of embryos, using that, these algorithms that they developed and rank the embryos so that we have now a, a more informed way of doing selection. That would be super. So I'm thinking now instead of if I'm the embryologist, I have three embryos. The patient wants us to transfer one. I'm going to look at the three embryos and rank them. Maybe I rank them two, one, three. But a computer having stored all of this information and having picked out little features of cell membranes or the way the cells are adhesed to each other, the volume of the embryo. Maybe the computer would say, I actually would pick one, two, and three based on this algorithm. We Mm. would love, I think, to be able to offer our patients that increment of a better chance of getting pregnant. So these are the things, these are the things with AI that are being pursued right now. They are out on the market. There are a number of platforms. I do not know which laboratories perhaps are using them exclusively now to do embryo selecting. Certainly embryologists have been aware of them. When you go to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and you walk through the exhibit hall, they're all there. And I think that like other products in in embryology, we would assess each program, see the see the studies that have led to its emergence on the market, what has validated it, see if what trials have been done so they can say this program increased their pregnancy rate by 15 percentage points by letting mm-hmm. the computer choose the embryo. Perhaps this will become part of the, the laboratory of the mid, mid-21st century. Um, I know that there are AI platforms for even choosing sperm. So um, remarkable. 
Yes. We look forward to every edge that would help us achieve a pregnancy for a patient even faster. There are advances being made that will perhaps alleviate the need to biopsy the embryo to know its chromosomal composition or a particular genetic feature. That's wow. called, that's called non-invasive embryo testing. And the theory is sort of like the ba- baby in the bathwater. Instead of testing the baby, you're hoping that there's something in the bathwater that the baby maybe have left behind that you can test that instead. So embryologists, I think, would welcome the chance to dispense with doing something to an embryo like removing five to seven cells. I think we are proficient at it and we do no harm, but it's invasive and it would be best if we, we didn't. The, the whole point of medicine now is to, be, is to do as much as we can without being so invasive. I think when we last uh, were together at the Jefferson Conference, we talked about in vitro gametogenesis that has already yes. been achieved in mammals. It's a very exciting scientific thing, but I think in the same way that stem cell biology and maybe cloning were alarming, uh, there are some scientists and ethicists who are looking with some trepidation and caution at in vitro gametogenesis. So this is a derivative of stem cell technology. And Mm -hmm. you may recall that the beauty, I think the promised beauty of stem cell technology is that we could take a cell, any cell, a fibroblast from our, from our skin and put that in culture and de-differentiate it, knock it back down to before it became a skin cell when it was what's called a pluripotent cell, pluripotent, meaning it can become anything. Suppose we were to knock it back down and, and we could maybe, we hope, build new kidney cells or new liver cells if we had some kind of disease. We hope that it would help people with spinal cord injuries if we could grow nerve cells and maybe repopulate a damaged spinal cord, things of that nature. Very exciting for medicine. Maybe it would come to life, help us treat diseases. But some scientists have wondered, take them back to pluripotent cells, but now instead of having them differentiate into these cells for organs like lungs or kidneys or livers, suppose we could take them back and induce them to become either sperm or eggs. So now we have the potential for a woman generating as many eggs as she may wish from her skin cells. And we can do that in culture and and not have to give her gonadotropins or fertility drugs to stimulate her ovaries. And for patients whose ovaries are not responsive, either doing either due to clinical conditions or to advanced age, she would not have to buy donor eggs now. Again, we could just use her cells. Her skin. Right. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Amazing. We'll see how that turns out, Lisa, as early as um, 2021 at the American Society of Reproductive Annual Meeting in, I believe that was Baltimore, there was an attorney there who was aware of this technology and was already encouraging the membership of the ASRM to be careful about how we proceed on this because it is radical, I guess, just as in vitro fertilization was radical in the late 70s. 
but yes. it, it shows that we, we may be able to do assisted reproduction in ways we had not anticipated until now. It's incredible. And as you're saying, you know, we do have this wonderful balance in the United States of having groups like the FDA, like the ASRM groups that are overseeing all of these things. People often will say to me, well, you know, it would be great if I could just kind of go someplace where they're doing this, maybe in the middle of China, this is happening, or maybe in Russia, this is happening or whatever. But we do have these bodies that oversee what we're doing all of the time. And that's also a good thing, even though things may happen a little more slowly than people like. We are careful about that, which is fantastic. But also, I think people will be so excited to hear that this could give us an opportunity to have a same-sex couple have children with their own genetics, right? Yes. Um, I think I showed a slide at Jefferson, yes. Lisa, the one about the mouse pups that were born from two male parents. So clearly from one male mouse, they induced that male mouse's fibroblast to become eggs or oocytes and then use the other male sperm to fertilize them. And hence you have mice whose two biologic parents are both male. Um, that Incredible. It was on the internet, so um, it certainly is available for anyone to read about. It's amazing. And I think it'll really change things for people who are going through donor conception because they're in a same-sex couple. They can have use their own gametes, which would really be a beautiful thing for them ultimately. And as you're saying, this is just from there, this is not just kind of created in you know, a space age, you know, AI technology lab. This is real and this is something that, you know, isn't on our horizon, which is really amazing. You also did mention something about embryo glue. So a lot of people out there who um, are listening, you know, implantation of the embryo is um, something that everyone wonders about. And it's not something that we are looking at, just like you're looking at the eggs and the sperm in the lab, you're kind of controlling it with medication. You're not taking the eggs and sperm out through some medical process. What happens inside of the uterus is something that's, you know, a bit of mystery still. And so this might be something that could improve that, right? Yes. I mentioned that I thought embryo glue had one of the best names of any product ever. Yeah. Right? Because it, it does allow the patient to infer that this is something that will make that embryo stick in my uterus and will lead to a pregnancy. And indeed, the, the theory behind embryo glue is that it will increase or it will foster a higher tendency for the embryo to remain in the uterus by making it sticky or adhesive. So the active ingredient in embryo glue is hyaluronic acid. I think I, I called it at the Jefferson Conference sort of like moisturizer for embryos, right? Because hyaluronic <laughs> yeah. acid is also a product of uh, some of cosmetics, anti-wrinkle cream, I think. But the theory is that if you coat the embryo in hyaluronin or hyaluronic acid and then put it in the uterus, it will, just because it is a little stickier now, remain in the embryo. It, patients, I think, worry after embryo transfer that the embryo will slip out or perhaps just drift somewhere else, maybe down too low to implant, um, maybe into the cervix. So it, it's just a way of physically 
amping up the odds that the embryo will remain in the uterus long enough for it to develop and and differentiating and implanting. I mentioned that there are a number of studies that anyone can query in a search engine to determine what the scientific community thinks. Uh, There are some studies that show that it has improved pregnancy rates and other studies that have not been able to show that. I encourage people to look for things called Cochrane analyses. Cochrane is C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E. It's a proper name. But those are analyses that have considered a number of studies and have tried to discern what collectively they all show. When you take all of these studies together, do they, as a as an aggregate, prove that embryo glue or, or anything that you're testing in the Cochrane analysis is effective or not? So um, I think it's still sort of a an equivocal issue. Uh, when our patients ask for embryo glue, we, we provide it at request, but um, it's not clear how many programs, how many IVF laboratories use it routinely. It is definitely a, a product, and it is a well-quality control product. It is made by a company called VitroLife, and it is, it is called embryo glue. Is there any downside to using it? I do not think there is any downside in using it. So that's great to know. It's it's wonderful for people to know about that. And particularly, of course, everybody wants to get pregnant, but particularly when you're going to the expense and effort of using donor conception, you know, you very often want to do everything you possibly can to achieve this pregnancy. So using some of these things that you've mentioned today, Kathy, using ICSI, using embryo glue, using some of these other procedures may increase their chances and certainly of genetic screening if that's helpful. And can you recommend anything else for people to think about? I only recommend that when you are seeking family building advice, you work out a good plan with your physician. I I think a physician is happy to answer questions just as we've been doing. Lisa, patients may come as we would to any medical caregiver if we were highly motivated to, to solve a problem. It's like, what about this? What about this? Would this be suitable for me? And to, to map it all out, consider the advantages and disadvantages. The physician will help the patient understand if something is indicated or appropriate. You know, we, we have a lot of our young women now deciding whether or not to freeze their eggs. I think that probably both of us have been approached about that. And again, mm-hmm. that's something that you, that a, a patient should explore gathering information and doing research and understanding the most you can about something will only serve a patient in helping to formulate their own care and to set yeah. their own, to help set their expectations. Yes, I completely agree with you. I do have one other question for you before we start to wind down because just one thing we haven't covered. And of course, particularly for women who ha- who are uh, of advanced maternal age and they are considering ovum donation and, and still, you know, at this time, this is what, what people are going to do. But there is an opportunity to change the mitochondria of their 
egg, right? At some point. Yes. Not today, but at some point. And so your donor would still be your donor, but you would still be part of the part of the contributor of, to that child. Yes. That technique is called MRT, mitochondrial replacement therapy. I think that that therapy is not allowed in the United States because the FDA sees that as a new kind of transplantation. It is introducing the DNA of the donor, although it will not influence the appearance of the child. Only the, the recipient of the mitochondria's uh, nuclear DNA would be active. But it does create a new situation where you have the paternal parent's DNA, the maternal parent's DNA, and then the donor's mitochondrial DNA. So it's a, a new model that I think the FDA wants us to approach cautiously. I know that it is permitted in the United Kingdom and may possibly be done in um, other countries, but I, I don't think that we've surmounted the FDA's concerns about it yet. But if patients want to read about it and um, understand what it's intended, it, it is called mitochondrial replacement therapy. In the lay press, it was called three-parent DNA because that's so much more alluring. Mm -hmm. And basically, you're kind of recharging the woman's eggs, right? Mitochondria are the batteries for our cells. So the, the thinking is that the reason that the eggs of older women are not as efficient in yielding pregnancies is because the mitochondria are possibly mutated or are just not quite as charged up as as they were when the when the woman was in her 20s or 30s it is the one part of the egg cell that has undergone the most negative effects of aging if you can replace this mitochondria with the juiced up batteries of a of a 28 year old you'll derive all of that good cellular energy yeah couldn't we all use that, right? As we get older, a little battery pack. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh -huh. Those are really, really helpful um, pieces of information for us. I really appreciate, you know, everything that you're sharing with us today because I think we're giving, you know, the audience this wonderful education that's so great and so wonderful for them to know. People scour the internet for hours to learn all the things that you've taught us today. So I really appreciate your time, Kathy. Is there anything else that you feel we haven't touched on or you feel like patients should know about as they're going through this donor conception process? Well, let's run it down, Lisa. So we've covered the sequence of events in an IVF cycle from getting the eggs and sperm, uniting them to achieve fertilization, growing the embryos, the dispositions for the embryos. We've talked about the laboratory, the importance of qualified personnel and quality programs for best outcomes. The embryologists as a professional community who are totally dedicated to helping patients achieve their families along with their colleagues in medicine and nursing. We've talked about emerging technology, AI for embryo selection. We talked about products that are available to complement IVF like embryo glue. We talked about genetic testing. We do have the benefits of the internet. So all of the things we've talked about, patients can can see videos that will help them understand what ICSI is, to see 
an egg that's being injected by a sperm. That's a technology that's been in our armamentarium now since 1992. What trophectoderm or embryo biopsying looks like. So they'll, they'll see the embryo being stabilized and see the, the number of cells that are being extracted from the embryo to be sent to a genetics lab. They can look up a video on embryo freezing so that they can see what that process is. They can look up terms like chain of custody to understand how embryologists label and identify and confirm all of the specimens before we do any critical events to them. To understand that that embryologists are trained and have proficiency in training programs similar to what the physicians do to do some minimal number of techniques over and over again so they're grooved and and there's complete proficiency that's acquired. I, I think that we've covered it, Lisa. We've covered regulation. Patients should know that for all types of IVF, all IVF clinics are required to report their outcomes to the Center for Disease Control and the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology. So there's accountability. Patients can consult those data. There are clinics that do um, different populations of patients, possibly more challenging patients, so that they could see where there's a clinic that, that might be particularly suited for them. But I think there is a so much more, many more resources for patients now to consult, to build their knowledge and feel more confident when they pursue their, their treatment. Absolutely. And on the other hand, there's a lot of misinformation on the internet, and I think it gets very confusing for patients sometimes what's at, what's real and what isn't. So I really appreciate you giving us all this information. I feel like it's almost provided everyone out there with an index of things to look for and to to you know study in their leisure in more detail. And you know this will really hopefully kind of keep people on the right track and be able to search the things that are really important in the process and that will ultimately serve them well in their discussions with their doctors. So thank you so much. I really appreciate everything that you're sharing and I appreciate you and all that you're doing out there. You're, you know, a wonderful um, colleague to have and so I'm I'm very glad to have you here. Thank you so much for your time, Kathy. It's a pleasure, Lisa. Anything to support our patients. Thank you. And I'm assuming that people can, if they are interested, reach out to you online. Is there a, a website where they can go and find you? I guess it's it's not quite the 21st century thing to be, but I'm, I'm not much of a social media person. Maybe it's a generational thing. But mm-hmm. um, if there's a way for them to communicate with your podcast site and you could pass their questions on to me, I would be happy to answer them. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. And for all of you out there, please feel free to reach out to me with the questions about the lab that I can pass on to Dr. Go or anything else I'm happy to help you with. And certainly please subscribe because that's how we keep going and that's how you can learn about all the new episodes that are coming. So thanks for joining us today. I hope this was beneficial to you and I'll see you next time.